Welcome to Proclaiming Justice, a podcast from PJTN that focuses the light of truth on vital issues in today's headlines that impact every American. I'm your host, Laurie Cardoza-Moore, founder and president of Proclaiming Justice to the Nations, and I'm here to educate, motivate, and activate you to action. I want to arm you with the truth and the facts you'll need to fight and preserve our constitutional republic and uphold the Judeo-Christian values our nation was founded upon. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Focus on Israel. I'm Lori Cardoza-Moore, president of Proclaiming Justice to the Nations, a nonprofit organization dedicated to educating Christians about their biblical responsibility to the Jewish people. Many Christians do not realize that the Word explicitly tells us to stand with our Jewish brethren and defend the land God calls His. On the program today, we'll look not only at the why and how of the Holocaust, but more importantly, why did Christians stand by and let not only six million Jews be murdered, but close to another five million unwanted people as well? How could Christians have turned a blind eye to the genocidal state around them? Are we turning away again? Are we bound to make the same mistakes and carry on the false perceptions of our past? Worldwide, we see a growing attack on both the legitimacy and security of the state of Israel, as well as violent assaults on the safety of our Jewish brethren everywhere. In Europe, men and women who bear the tattoos of concentration camps look out on a continent where Jewish lives and Jewish property are under attack and public debate is poisoned by an anti-Semitism we thought was no more. In Iran, we see a regime that backs Hezbollah and Hamas and a leader who vows to wipe Israel from the map, a terrorist state that is now on course to acquire a nuclear weapon. Israel's six million Jews are in danger from total annihilation. Could we be witnesses to the next Holocaust? Since 2001, over 9,000 rockets and mortar have been fired into Israel from sites in Gaza and Lebanon by Hamas and Hezbollah. But each time Israel moves to protect her citizens, the cry of war crimes rings from the world. The U.S., once Israel's greatest ally, is now putting greater pressure on Israel to give away land, a move that could prove suicidal for the Jewish state. In 2004, the British Parliament set up an inquiry into anti-Semitism. The inquiry stated that until recently, the prevailing opinion, both within the Jewish community and beyond, had been that anti-Semitism had receded to the point that it existed only on the margins of society. It found an alarming reversal of this progress since 2000. A report from the U.S. State Department from March 14, 2008 detailed an upsurge across the world of anti-Semitism. And more recently, in America, we are witnessing increasingly violent attacks on our Jewish communities. Of the 7 billion people on this planet, roughly 14 million are Jewish. That's about 0.1% of the world's population. So why is there such hatred for this small and seemingly insignificant group of people in this tiny country called Israel? Hitler and the Nazis did not invent anti-Semitism, but when his final solution came along, 
the people were prepared to believe the evil propaganda. Christian teachings didn't lead to Auschwitz, but it made it a lot easier. The roots of this hate have traveled long and go deep. Anti-Semitism, often called the longest hatred, has many manifestations, from individual expressions of hatred and discrimination to organized violent mob attacks called pogroms, to the most extreme form of anti-Semitism, genocide, as seen under Adolf Hitler's Nazi Germany. Down through the ages, the Jews have been blamed for virtually every sickness, subversion, socioeconomic failure, or world war. Blaming the Jews has been a long-standing Gentile tradition. It goes all the way back to the time of Haman, the prime minister of Persia, who said there's a people among us whose customs are not like ours, and it is not in the best interest of the king to tolerate them. So therefore, they should be removed. And then we can see down through history continual manifestations of the spirit of anti-Semitism to say that this people, because they are different, needs to be eradicated. This people needs to be removed. It's not in our best interest to tolerate them. And so it has continued, and it continues to this day. The seed of anti-Semitism that had begun with the Egyptians and had been nurtured by both the Greek and Roman worlds found new fertile ground after the death of Jesus of Nazareth. Although Jews who became followers of Jesus wrote the majority of the New Testament, there are a number of passages in the New Testament that some see as anti-Semitic and have been used for such hateful purposes. In the book of John, Jesus tells a group of Pharisees, I know that you are descendants of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. If you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. The first accusation that the Jewish people were collectively responsible for the death of Jesus came in a sermon in 167 AD by Melito of Sardis. In this homily, Melito formulated the charge of deicide, that Jews were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. He proclaimed that God has been murdered, the King of Israel has been slain by an Israelite hand. One of the most unfortunate epithets that has emerged in the history of the Christian church and its relationship toward the Jewish people has been the title of Christ killers. It's a sad epithet because it's not true. The Jews did not kill Jesus. Jesus was victimized by a conspiracy with the Roman government and he was actually killed by Roman centurions and hung on a cross. There was complicity on the part of some of the aristocracy and some of the leaders in Israel, but the Jews, the masses of the Jewish people, had no responsibility and no complicity in that action. So it's unfortunate that Christianity in its history has felt it necessary to call the Jews Christ killers and it's been unfortunate for the Jewish people and their children that so many have been literally killed by Christians while the epithet Christ killer was being hurled in their direction. How ironic that 
We separate Jesus' sufferings on the cross from the historic sufferings of the Jewish people through the centuries. If anything, Jesus suffered because he was a loyal Jew, a Jew loyal to Torah, to his faith, to his tradition, to his people, to the mission that God had given him. But the accusation against Jews as Christ killers has led to the death of many Jewish people who are often depicted as being in partnership with the devil. In turn, with the rejection of Jesus by the Jews, the seeds of replacement theology began to bloom. Christians saw themselves as God's chosen people and the Jews as his forgotten and rejected people. Christian anti-Semitism is a particularly difficult problem because Christians saw themselves in the early centuries as directly replacing Judaism, the concept of a new covenant superseding the old covenant. And this kind of supersession theology still exists in many pockets to this very day. And it does engender what we might call spiritual anti-Semitism, that if Judaism no longer has a validity of being today, then why are Jews here? And why are all of the problems surrounding the Jews so threatening to the rest of Western civilization? During the Middle Ages in Europe, there was full-scale persecution in many places, as the Black Death devastated Europe in the mid-14th century, killing more than half of the population. Jews became scapegoats, as rumors spread that they caused the disease by deliberately poisoning wells. Hundreds of Jewish communities were destroyed by violence. Local rulers and church officials closed many professions to Jews, pushing them into marginal occupations considered socially inferior, such as tax and rent collecting and money lending. This further increased the tensions between Jews and Christians. Catholic doctrine of the time held that lending money for interest was a sin and forbidden to Christians. This eventually led to the stereotype of the insolent and greedy Jew, a prejudice still held today by many. Jews were subject to a wide range of legal restrictions throughout the Middle Ages, permitted to reside in only certain places, such as ghettos, and were not allowed to own land. The persecution of Jews hit its first peak during the Crusades. The religious zeal fomented by the Crusades often burned as fiercely against Jews as against Muslims, though attempts were made by the papacy to stop Jews from being attacked. Many times they would attack Jewish communities in Europe on their way to fight the Muslims in the Holy Land. And so, you know, here I think you could say there's more of a religiously motivated um, attacks against the Jewish people. From around the 12th century through the 19th, there were Christians who believed that many Jews possessed magical powers. Some believed that they had gained these magical powers from making a deal with the devil. This led to the accusation of blood libel, as many reasoned that the Jews, having crucified Jesus, continued to thirst for pure and innocent blood. In 1492, King Ferdinand of Spain used an edict of expulsion of Jews, giving Jews four months to either convert to Christianity or leave the country. Those who remained and converted to Christianity became subject to the Spanish Inquisition, a torturous judgment of the sincerity of their conversion. From the 9th to the 19th century, Jews fared little better in the Middle East. 
the Islamic world imposed slave-like status on both Christian and Jewish minorities and saw pogroms and massacres as many were forced to convert to Islam or face death. Historian Martin Gilbert writes that it was in the 19th century that the position of Jews worsened in Muslim countries. They are obliged to live in a separate part of town, for they are considered as unclean creatures. Under the pretext of their being unclean, they are treated with the greatest severity, and should they enter a street inhabited by Muslims, the boys and mobs with stones and dirt pelt them. For the same reason, they are prohibited to go out when it rains. For it is said the rain would wash dirt off them, which would sully the feet of the Muslims. If a Jew is recognized as such in the streets, he is subjected to the greatest insults. The passers-by spit in his face and sometimes beat him unmercifully. One symbol of Jewish degradation was the phenomenon of stone-throwing at Jews by Muslim children, still practiced by the Palestinian children in the streets today. History is twisted, just like what happened in Nazi Germany. If you compare the education system in Nazi Germany, you will get almost an identical system that you have under the Islamic fundamentalist world. Where in the Islamic fundamentalist world, they're taught that Jews have to put yellow patches on their right shoulder. This is resurrecting what happened in Nazi Germany. In fact, if you look at history, you will find out that it was Nazi Germany that resurrected the Muslim fundamentalist law of the Jews putting yellow patches on their right shoulder. If you run the edict between the Omar Covenant and the Nazi treatment of Jews, you will find them to be nearly identical. In 1543, Martin Luther, a monk whose teachings inspired the Reformation, wrote about Jews in his book, On the Jews and Their Lies. Luther thought that because he would break with Rome, the Jews for whom Rome was rather troublesome and problematic would embrace this new form of Christianity and would flock to Luther in support because of his break with Rome. When it didn't happen, the great disappointment overtook Luther and he turned virulently anti-Semitic. If we really look at the foundation of Christian teachings concerning the Jewish people, Israel, and this historic relationship between the church of the synagogue that there has been a lot of tension and sometimes actual teachings of contempt. Martin Luther, for instance, and we value his great contributions to faith, initially reached out to the Jewish community and made some very positive statements. Uh, he uh, talked about how important it was to study Hebrew, to understand the Bible. He talked about how if you did just looked at Hellenism without Judaism, it was bestial. You had to have Judaism and understand your own faith. But later on, in the latter part of his life, he became very uh, disturbed that Jewish people continued not to accept Christ as their Savior. And eventually, he began to uh, talk in words of contempt. In one writing, he said these Jews should be treated with sharp mercy. He said they shouldn't be allowed to teach. They shouldn't be allowed to pray in public. You should confiscate their property, herd them in the stables, burn them in the stables with fire and pitch thrown in. Now, I think if anyone is listening and looking at what Martin Luther is saying and then look at what happened in the history of the Third Reich, we'd have to say that Adolf Hitler and the final solution 
was carrying out some of the foundational teachings. And I don't think it's just Martin Luther. I think there's other elements in other churches and other church teachings as well. Often termed the first work of modern anti-Semitism, it was a giant step forward on the road to the Holocaust as the Nazis, in their anti-Semitic propaganda, used many of Luther's statements. Hitler, who was born a Roman Catholic and was never excommunicated by the Catholic Church, was very much enamored of the nationalism, of the national geist that was engendered by Luther. In America, in the first half of the 20th century, the Leo Frank lynching by a mob of prominent citizens in Marietta, Georgia in 1915, turned the spotlight on anti-Semitism in the United States and led to the founding of the Anti-Defamation League. Anti-Semitism in the United States reached its peak in the 1930s, as automobile manufacturer Henry Ford propagated anti-Semitic ideas in his newspaper, The Dearborn Independent. Ford and Adolf Hitler admired each other's achievements, and Hitler even kept a life-size portrait of Ford in his office. Two years before becoming the Chancellor of Germany in 1933, Hitler told a Detroit News reporter, I regard Henry Ford as my inspiration. Ford was later awarded the Grand Cross of the German Eagle, the highest medal awarded by Nazi Germany to foreigners. It's one of the sad chapters of history that Great Britain and the United States have a significant responsibility for the death of the six million because of the fact that if the United States State Department had opened its immigration laws and if the Foreign Secretariat of, of Britain had done the same thing, thousands if not millions of those Jewish people who actually in, ended up dying in the Holocaust could have escaped and immigrated to the United States and to Britain but the doors were closed. Adolf Hitler based much of his hatred in his book Mein Kampf upon Luther's writings, as well as those of Ford, eugenicists, and Islamic text. The centuries of anti-Semitism that were widespread and deeply ingrained in the European people was fertile ground for the propaganda of the Nazi party. Using the powerful new medium of film, the Nazis spread their lies through Germany and Europe like wildfire. With Triumph of the Will, the myths of the invincible and godlike Third Reich became cinematic art. Other powerfully persuasive films, such as The Eternal Jew, promoted the misconceptions and lies long held about the Jewish people, as well as adding some of their own. Films, books, newspapers, billboards, all steadily fed the German people anti-Semitic propaganda. Many things that run contrary to Nazi doctrine were depicted to be associated with Jewish influence, such as pornography, socialism, as well as cultural relativism. Jews quickly became the scapegoat for all Germany's ills. They thought and believed and taught that the Jews were a subhuman species. And so therefore they were, uh, they could be eradicated just like one would eradicate vermin that were bringing ill on society. Judaism never defined itself as a race. For us, it's not the genes, it's not the ethnicity that counts. It's the values and the lifestyle. By 1942, Germany had become a genocidal state with every part of the country's bureaucracy involved in the killing process. 
Not one social group, not one religious community, not one scholarly institution or professional association in Germany and throughout Europe declared its solidarity with the Jews. This made the Holocaust distinctive because anti-Semitic policies were able to unfold without the interference of counterforces. Never before had a state with the authority of its responsible leader decided and announced that a specific human group, including its aged, its women, and its children, would be killed as quickly as possible. One of the prime ministers of Israel made an interesting statement, uh, Menachem Begin. He said, if anyone tells you they're going to kill the Jews, believe them. In 1922, Adolf Hitler made a famous speech in Munich where he said, I want to kill all the Jews in Munich, hang them from the gallows, tell their bodies, provide a stench throughout the community, and then I'm going to go to every city in Germany and do the same thing. And everyone dismissed him. He's just a politician. He's making a fiery speech. Why did the Christians welcome him? Why were there so many Christian Deutschen that supported Adolf Hitler, the majority of Christians. The slaughter was systematically conducted in all areas of Nazi-occupied territory and what are now 35 separate European countries. It resulted in the mass extermination of six million Jews, more than a third of the world's Jewish population. As Hitler and the Nazi party rose to power in 1933, many church groups in Germany supported the new government for several reasons. The Nazis claimed that they would support positive Christianity. Many Christians, especially Catholics, were violently opposed to Soviet communism and its anti-religion ideology. They believed that the Nazis would suppress the spread of communism, and many Christians supported the Nazis' anti-Jewish stance. Nearly 2,000 years of persecution carried a tide of hatred to a level never seen before. They used uh, past statements by Christian scholars and theologians, including Martin Luther, as an excuse uh, for some of the things that they did. They also quoted from other Greek fathers and Latin fathers of the church and statements that they made against the Jewish people. But those were only excuses. Those were only things that were used as a means of trying to justify what they were doing. And by the way, there were German theologians at the time of Hitler that were supportive of what he was doing and justified what he was doing as well. In July 1933, the Vatican signed a Reich Concordant with Nazi Germany, which stated that the Vatican recognized the political legitimacy of Nazi Germany in exchange for a guarantee that the Nazis would not interfere with Catholic institutions and schools. The Pope refused to directly condemn the Nazis in his pronouncements but supported the rescue of Jews from behind the scenes. Catholic clergy in Italy played a very large role in hiding Italian Jews. The German Protestant Church split. Supporters of the Nazis, called German Christians, were prepared to follow the Nazis' orders at all costs. Historians tell us that Germany is the beginnings of the Protestant faith. But in spite of the great Christian tradition, and even as historians talk about a, a high level of civilization, the Holocaust was in Germany. And we say, did Christian teachings in any way contribute to 
what we say in Hebrew, the Shoah, the storm, the Holocaust. So I think if we're going to be honest as Christians who want to be true to history and look for important changes, we'd have to say there, there is a tradition of history of contempt. The reason that that happened is I believe that we abandoned the roots of our faith, the foundations of our faith in ancient Israel. It really was happening already in Rome when Paul wrote his letter. Because when he wrote his letter to the church in Rome, he said, don't choose the path of arrogance. Remember, it's the root that nourishes the branch. And what have we done? We have cut off the branch we're sitting on in history. Opponents of the Nazis created a breakaway church called the Confessing Church, but only a small group of confessing Christians made active efforts to hide Jews or help them escape the country. As a rule, the church was more interested in protecting itself and its members than in saving Jews. Thus, the church and Christians were silent, both during the issuing of the Nuremberg Laws of 1935 and the massive Kristallnacht pogrom of November 1938. After the war, both the Catholic and Protestant churches admitted the fact that Christians had not done enough to help the Jews during the Holocaust. While the Holocaust was occurring in Germany and other parts of Europe, Christians largely stood by silently. The Nazis were so vicious and uh, so controlling with the, with the SS and their uh, treating of their own German people that people were in fear. They lived in total fear for their own lives. And so it took a, a real measure of courage for people to stand up and to stand against what they were doing. Uh, we know the stories of many of the righteous Gentiles uh, in various parts of Europe who risked their own lives to hide Jewish people and uh, to try to rescue them. Our mission at PJTN is to raise up more righteous Christians such as Corey Ten Boom, and we believe that this can only be achieved through educating Christians. Jesus once told his disciples, the truth will set you free. The truth is out there, but not in the misinformation spun by the media against Israel. Well, that's our show for today. And I want you to know we appreciate hearing from you. Please send your comments and questions to comments at pjtn.org. The time to stand up is now. So get involved and support pro-Israel organizations such as PJTN. Call your senators, congressmen, and the White House. Let your elected leaders hear from you. Visit our website to learn more. Sign up to receive free newsletters, action alerts, daily blogs, and of course, order our films to share with others. God bless you and thank you for all you do on behalf of our Jewish brethren and all Israel. We'll see you next time on Focus on Israel. To support this program, send your tax-deductible gift to Proclaiming Justice to the Nations, P.O. Box 682711, Franklin, Tennessee, 37068. You can also support PJTN online. Visit PJTN.org or call 1-877-873-9020. Anti-Semitism has reached epic proportions, and Israel is now surrounded by nations who seek its destruction. For Israel to lose just one battle would mean losing everything. As Christians, it is our biblical responsibility to stand with our Jewish brethren and Israel. PJTN needs your help to reach more Christians with this urgent message. 
please visit our website to become a member today and order our award-winning documentaries. You must decide that you won't be silent. Sign up now at pjtn.org. God bless you and thank you for your support and prayers. Thank you again for joining me on this edition of Proclaiming Justice. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. For more information about how you can get involved, please visit our website at pjtn.org. As a PJTN watchman, you can help us keep up the fight to preserve our freedom for our children and their children for such a time as this.